Just before we uh, start, I want to uh, say thank, uh, this morning we prayed about the Lord um, in the prayer meeting. He talked about how God is more interested in our given heart than in the quality of what we give to him. And um, I'm reminded of my daughter. She's been trying to make us cups of tea in the morning. And if you've ever seen Monty Python, the Ministry of Silly Walks, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Well, they order a cup of tea and this person wanders in and they're walking all over the place and the tea's going everywhere. Well, basically, whenever Lydia gives us a cup of tea, half of it's all over the floor and it's freezing cold. But we're blessed (laughs) because she's doing it because she wants to bless us. And I think sometimes we might muck up a bit, but God would rather you gave something and get it wrong than just think, oh, I'm not good enough. That's his heart. In the same way, Daniela has been showing me pictures of a Christmas tree she's tried to draw, and it looks rather like a nuclear rocket with a few UFOs around it. But we're blessed, because she's trying to bless us. just thought I'd uh, say that to encourage you. My heart this morning is to encourage you. I hope I won't go on too long. I've got a fair bit to say, but I'll try and keep going. And I want to talk about the amazing ability of our God. Um, You all know the story of the Exodus. God's people were slaves under the world superpower at the time, Egypt, the most fortified country. They They had a string of forts and castles all around the borders. They had the strongest army in the world, and God got them out. It's utterly impossible. And it was led by one man called Moses, and all he had was a stick. Ridiculous. But God's ability to do that. Scholars think that when they were in the desert, which is the only route they could go because all the other routes had castles around it, they probably needed 900 tonnes of food each day in the desert. You can't do that, can you? There were possibly up to 2 million people. They think the camp of the Israelites may have been up to 500 square miles when it was all camped down. Two million litres of water per day. 2,400 tonnes of firewood per day. Totally bonkers. But God, they can't explain where Israel came from. And I want to just say this to you. The same God that did that massive miracle is your God. We often reduce him to pocket size. And Jesus... He did the great exodus. He brought the world out from under Satan and the slavery of Satan. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil. So I'm going to be speaking this morning on God's amazing ability. And I just want to uh, do four things, really. A bit of background, very quickly. Um, If you know the story, when the Israelis or the Hebrews were in Egypt... They were growing and growing and growing in number, and the pharaoh got very worried, so he ordered the extermination of all the baby boys, the sons. They were to be thrown into the river Nile, where there were crocodiles. And um, <clears throat> that is the context. And I just want, and one of the uh, women, called, uh, I can't remember her name, was it Jochebed? She was the mummy of Moses. And Moses, when he was born, they looked after him, for three months in a house, then he started to cry too much, and she had to take him and put him outside somewhere. And she went and put him in the very place where the crocodiles were. 
<laughs> not in the, not on the edge of the River Nile. Another say, Pharaoh was very happy to kill all the boys. He didn't mind the girls staying around because he thought, well, if the girls are there, then the Egyptian men can marry them and they can become Egyptian families. Don't mind if the girls live. The girls don't count. I'm not, I don't believe that, by the way. He thought the girls don't count. The Egyptian men can marry them, assimilate them, but the boys need to be killed. We pick up the story in Exodus chapter 2, where, I'll read it if you can't see it on the screen, it's a bit small, where the mother of Moses decides to take him near the River Nile to try and hide him. And it says this, verse 3 of chapter 2, Then, when the baby's mother could no longer hide her baby boy, she made a little boat from papyrus reeds, waterproofed it with tar, put the baby in it and laid it among the reeds among the river's edge. The baby's sister watched from a distance to see what would happen to him. Well, this is what happened. A princess, <laughs> one of Pharaoh's daughters, came down to bathe in the river. And as she and her maids were walking along the riverbank, she spied the little boat among the reeds and sent one of the maids to bring it to her. When she opened it, there was a baby. And he was crying. This touched her heart. He must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess and asked her, shall I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, do, the princess replied. So the little girl rushed home and called her mother. Take this child home and nurse him for me, the princess instructed the baby's mother, and I will pay you well. So she took him home and nursed him. Later, when he was older, she brought him back to the princess and he became her son. She named him Moses, meaning to draw out, because she had drawn him out of the water. Now, I want you to notice what's going on here. God is so able, and I love God, it excites me anyway. He's able to outwit Satan, outmaneuver the devil, turn the tables on the enemy, because Pharaoh said the girls don't count. God used girls. He used, in fact, we didn't read it, but he used a couple of women too earlier on in the chapter called the midwives. And they're given names in this Bible, Shipra and Puah, I think the names are. They're given names because God thinks they're important. The Pharaoh hasn't got a name. We don't even know who he was. He's a king of Egypt. God doesn't care about him. He cares about the midwives. He gives them a name. And the point I'm trying to make to you is God uses the insignificant people, the ones that the devil or the Pharaoh had written off, the ones that thought they don't count, they're insignificant, they're of no account. God uses the very people to outwit Satan and to rescue the baby who's going to become the deliverer. I love God. I love how he uses Miriam, little insignificant Miriam on the riverbank. I love how he uses Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, the daughter of the very man the daughter of the very man who ordered the death of all the babies becomes the very daughter who takes the deliverer into the palace of all places right under his nose. I'm laughing. I'm thinking, God, you so stitched up Satan. Satan thought, we'll destroy all the nation of Israel. 
the God gets his, the baby under, in the Pharaoh's palace. And there's another reason why he was put in Pharaoh's palace. It was because there he could learn all the education of the Egyptians so that he could write the first five books of the Bible. Because the slaves weren't very literate. Moses learned how to write, read and write. You know, he could write the first five books of the Bible because he was in the palace. He was rescued from the very place where the Nile was, where the crocodiles were. I don't know if you can see the ability of God to turn the tables on the enemy. The ability to outflank him, outmaneuver him. And I want to say that in your life. You know, if when things go really pear-shaped, God is in control. That's my first point. The amazing ability of God to be in control. I love how he turned the tables on the wicked one. He protected and preserved his child. Now, sometimes, I, you know stories where God just protects people. who he, he, He's got a purpose for your life, and he protects you. I think of John Wesley. You know, John Wesley was the leader of the Methodist church movement, great revival in England. Well, did you know he nearly died at the age of five? He was in a house fire in Epworth. The, the, um, there's a picture of it. Uh, there it is. You can't see it very well, but... There's little John Wesley coming out the window. <laughs> the point is this. He was five years old. The whole house caught fire. They don't know why it caught fire. Maybe, we don't know why. But as they pulled John Wesley out the window, all the roof collapsed on his bedroom. And it would have been his bedroom that would have collapsed. God kept him. Um, the ability of God to keep us. And I believe God's kept you for a purpose. I got a friend uh, who was, uh, he's quite old. Not as old, not, I'm not quite as old as he, but he was in the war, and he was a kid. And do you know what he was doing? He was in his garden one day, sorry, he was in his bedroom one day, he'd opened a cupboard to hang up a, a blazer, and this German plane flew over. I had to bring the war in, sorry. But a German plane flew over in the daytime and dropped a bomb, and it landed in his garden. He was blasted into the cupboard, the door shut on him in the cupboard, and all the glass from the window peppered the door. He would have been killed. God kept my friend. I've got another friend who's now with the Lord called Norman Mays. Some of you met him. God called him to preach all around the world. But when he was a baby in Kings Lynn, during the Blitz, the house to his left got bombed and it blew up. The house to his right got bombed and it blew up. His house wasn't touched. Now, I don't understand why some die and some don't, but do you believe God is in control? Certainly outwitted Pharaoh, didn't he? God's very clever, you know. He's much cleverer than the devil. I, even like the, well, I don't like the fact, but the fact they were slaves, you know the reason, one reason why they were allowed to become slaves? It's because they would have never followed Moses if they'd been living it up. If they had a nice life with all the food and the fish, they would never have followed Moses. He made them like that in order to get out, because they, they weren't where God wanted them in Egypt. Another quick thing to say about God being in control, I just want to show you this picture. That is the back of a tapestry. It's very, very messy, isn't it? And sometimes, when you look at the underside, or the underside of a tapestry, it looks a complete mess, and you think, what on earth is that? And sometimes our lives can be like that. 
All this stuff going wrong, things suffering, like black threads of suffering, um, things not working out as you would hope. Like Mark was praying about it, you know, not always getting exactly what you want, when you want. And you think, oh Lord, what is going on? But you know, God knows what it looks like on the other side of the tapestry. When you get to heaven, that's what it looks like on the other side. When you turn it round, it's a, a crown. It's beautiful. We actually saw this tapestry in Holland. It was made by Corrie ten Boom, who suffered. She was a lady in Holland in the war, and she, um, a bit like the Pharaoh's daughter, you know, she rescued 800 Jews, and they were right under the noses of the Gestapo. The Gestapo headquarters was about 200 metres away. And she wrote this poem just to show how God is in control. And I'm going to read you a poem. So sit back for a poem. <laughs> but this poem is about God using suffering, God using the bad things and the good together. And it's based on this thing. It's called the Tapestry Poem. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves in sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not until the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skilful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. You can have a copy if you want. <laughs> That's my first point. God is in control. I know it's a simple point, but I just love how God was working in Exodus. We're going to move on to my second point. The amazing ability of God to stay with us despite our mistakes. Now, I'm not going to read to you this passage, but Moses screwed up. If you know the story, Moses he got it in his head when he was 40 years old. He thought, I'm going to be the rescuer of the people of God. So he went out in his own strength, trying to sort people out. And he ended up murdering an Egyptian and burying him out of sight. And he thought he got away with it, but he didn't. People knew about it, and he did a runner, and he fled to the land of Midian. And he was there for 40 years, and God basically stopped him relying on himself during that time. He spent 40 years thinking he was a prince in the palace. Then he spent 40 years thinking he was a nobody in the desert. But the good news is this. This is what excites me. God didn't ditch him. God stayed with him. God appeared to him at the age of 80. See, there's hope for some of you. <laughs> Do you know, I was doing healing on the streets last week and there's a lady up there called Maureen and she's in a church and they've just baptised an 84-year-old. Praise God! My dad's 82. Still got hope. <laughs> got baptised at the age of 84. 
Moses probably thought to himself, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a washed up, you know. It was a good dream to be the deliverer of the people of God. Yeah, but it's not going to happen now, is it? I've got a bunch of sheep to look after. I'm 80. He probably thought, I'm, I'm yesterday's man. I'm, it's a fading dream. I'll just settle down and retire. No siree, God hadn't finished with him. And I want to just tell you, if you've screwed up, <laughs> if you've messed up, or you know, you, you've got, there's a big delay or whatever, just don't think God has abandoned you. It might change what he does with you, but he will bring you back into his plans, like he did Moses. I love how God didn't ditch Moses. He didn't um, give up on him. And you know, just to let you know, this is a sort of slight side point, but if you're in a very boring job, I don't know if any of you are in a boring job, but Moses' job was well boring. Looking after sheep in the desert. I mean, what can happen? A couple of wolves, maybe. But if you're in a boring job, you know, God can use that to prepare you. Because Moses got, he started to learn, he hadn't yet met God properly, but he started to learn to be quiet and be alone with God. Um, and a lot of these great men, you know, they spent a lot of time alone with God. Uh, all of them, in fact. Paul the Apostle, he, he had time in the desert. John the Baptist had time in the desert. Elijah had time in the desert. Um, Ezekiel had time alone by a river. A guy called Ezekiel. They all learnt to spend time alone with God. And God sometimes prepares you, teaches you to be faithful in the boring stuff, faithful in the monotony. You know, he had to be faithful looking after these sheep. And one day the Lord used him to look after God's sheep. Can I encourage you to be faithful in your jobs, even if they're dead boring? I heard of a job the other day where someone, all they did was stuck bottle caps on, onto bottles for 15 hours a day sometimes. I mean, how boring is that? Boring. But God can use this stuff to teach faithfulness and to get alone with God. So my second point is, God is with you when things seem to have gone wrong. He didn't give up on Moses. Right, let's move on. Oh, there's a picture of Moses looking bored. There you are. <laughs> with his sheep. But, you know, he must have thought, that's it, game over. I've missed the boat. But he hadn't. Right, next point. Point three, the amazing ability of God to transform an ordinary human being into someone extraordinary. Now, I don't know if you know this story. I'm just going to... There's a very ordinary bush there on fire. It was a very, very ordinary bush um, that Moses saw. He, he was walking in the desert one day and he suddenly saw this bush on fire. Now, in those days, bushes caught fire in the desert. That was pretty normal. It was probably an acacia bush called the... I read it somewhere. The Egyptian thorn bush. It had thorns on it. But in those days, you just burn up and disappear. But this one kept burning and 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 didn't disappear. And he thought, that's weird. So he went over and looked at it. I believe this is teaching us something about God. And I just want to read it to you. Chapter 3 of Exodus. Chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 1 to 5. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, God, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What do I want to say about that? What I want to say is this. I believe, this is what theologians think, but I, I also really believe this, that this bush burning was a revelation of who, what God is like with people. You see, the bush was a common, common garden muck bush. It was really common. It was a bush with thorns. And some people think that the bush can represent a human being. Could represent Moses, could represent you sat here today at River Church, could represent the church of God, but it's humans, people. And the reason people think that is because the thorns, if you think back, refer to the Garden of Eden where there was a curse and the thorns came. It's a picture of people who are sinners. The thorn bush, I believe, is a picture of a sinner. But here's the good news. It's all aflame and it's not being destroyed. The fire in the Bible, I believe this, the fire is a picture of God in his holiness. God in his holiness. See, fire can be your friend or your foe. If, you're, if you've got fire in a, in a hearth or if you've got the right sort of clothing on, you know, fire can be your friend. But if fire is going around your house, like the John Wesley uh, story. If fire is burning up your lounge, it's your enemy, isn't it? And the holiness of God is like fire. It will destroy sin. It will actively destroy sin. That is why we need to be saved. Because we can't go and live with God in heaven if he's like that, unless someone has rescued us. But the good news about this bush is that it's a picture of a sinner all alive with the presence and the holy fire of God, but it's not being destroyed. And why is it not being destroyed? Because of Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus has made it possible for the holy fire of God to be in a human being and not destroy them. Because of Jesus, the holy fire of God can come and live in you. And you can be full of the holy fire of God and not be destroyed. This is what it's a picture of. And I, want, I do believe that it's a picture of God too, because what happened here, the fire never went out. And God is the eternal God. The fire never went out. God is the living God. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm the God who never dies. And this fire just burned and burned and burned. But it's not destroying the sinner. And where was the fire? It was in the bush. God comes to live in people. This is what I feel the Lord showed me. He comes to indwell people. God the fire can come and indwell you and not destroy you. And you can be full of the fire of God. I think Charlie prayed this morning about the fire of the Holy Spirit. The burning bush is a picture of you and me with God's fire in us, not being destroyed. The God indwelling us. 
but there's a couple of things I want to say. One, or two things really. One, the, God spoke to him and said, Moses, Moses. And I love how he knew the name before Moses knew him. But the phrase Moses, Moses is a picture of intimacy. In Hebrew, I'm just showing off here, but I did read it somewhere. In Hebrew, if you say the name twice, it's like you're really intimate. It's like Chris, Chris. <laughs> Steve, Steve. It's a sign of intimacy. And God wants to be intimate with people. That's what it's saying. But there is a catch. The catch is you've got to take your shoes off. <laughs> Please don't do it, Pat, because we won't survive the smell. Um, what does that mean, take your sandals off? I think all it simply means is if you're going to approach God, you've got to obey him. Humble yourself, basically. Now, in those days, this is before Jesus died on the cross, you know, Moses just had to literally take his literal shoes off. We don't do that, but we have to humble ourselves. If we want to have the holy fire of God in us, indwelling us, intimacy with God, we, all we've got to do is just obey and humble ourselves to whatever the Lord is telling you to do. It might be to believe on Jesus Christ. Or it may be there are things that the Lord is just putting his finger on one thing. Just humble yourself. That's all he had to do. I don't, I don't want to read too much into it. But the good news is you don't have to stay away from this fire. You don't have to run from it. You can approach. You're not excluded. But you have to humble yourself. Like Moses. Otherwise, fire yeah, can be dangerous. <laughs> but God is pictured by fire in the Bible. I really believe that because you think about it. He met him at a burning bush. They followed a pillar of fire when they left Egypt. They, sat, they, they found fire on the mountain at Mount Sinai. And then, and then when God came to live with them in the tent, there was a pillar of fire there. I do believe it's a picture of God's fire of holiness and God. God can transform anybody, the most, any old person, if they humble themselves. And the last point, which is my final point, you'll be pleased to know, the ability of God to use us to do impossible things. You know, <laughs> I always think of Moses and his stick, you know. This stick, by the way, it was a cudgel. It was used to fight off wolves. It wasn't for the sheep. It was used for fighting off, you know, leopards and wolves. And God had the ridiculous idea of saying to Moses, Moses, I want you to go and face the superpower Egypt, and I'm giving you a stick. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is, if God calls you to do something that to you looks ridiculous, and you think, I haven't got the equipment, it's all right, because the Lord says, I am with you. And I just want to read that. My last passage. I've gone to verse 10 in the chapter 3. God says to Moses, after Moses he's met him in the fiery bush, God says to him, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said this to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now you might think, it's a bit of a funny question, Moses asked, what about your name? But you see, you have to understand that in ancient Egypt there were thousands of gods. The Egyptians had lots of different gods, and you know, if you went to someone saying, God has sent me, they would say, well, which one? And I love the name of the real God, his name is I Am, which basically means always. <laughs> Yahweh, always. But what I love about his name is, you know, this is what the Hebrews did. And I got excited about this when I read it. The Hebrews would take the name I am and then they would have it like a blank check. So they would say, I am the Lord that heals you. Jehovah Rophi, I think is the posh name in Hebrew. They would take the name I am and they'd have a blank check and they would put, I am the Lord your righteousness. Um... I am the Lord, your banner in battle. We sang about battles today. And the point I felt to share with you is this. When God sends you somewhere, he is the I am, and then you need to put in the blank check what you need. You know, like, for instance, I am peace. I am um, healing. I am strength. You need strength. You need patience. You say, I am patience. What, I suppose what I'm trying to do this morning is just encourage you that if God calls you to do something, however small, and you think, I can't do it, you've got the I am with you. God says, I will be with you. Um, Moses spent all his time looking at his own little stick and himself. And God sort of said, well, look up at me, Moses, the I am. I am what you need. I am your strength. Um, God is the great I am. Do you believe that this morning? I am, I mean, you might have a situation where you, you get really annoyed with something. I mean, Mark was praying this morning, I don't know what it is, he was sat there saying, oh Lord, I'm a bit fed up. You know, God could say to Mark, and I'm not just trying to pull scripture out of nowhere, but you know, I am your patience. I am what you need anyway, whatever that is. God, the great, I am. The devil likes to say, I am, but he's not. Um, I want to finish with a photograph of a missionary from OMF. This is my last slide. I may have spoken about this guy before, but he is one of my favourite missionaries of all time. His name is George Stott. And you look at the picture and you think, yeah, nice geezer with a beard. <laughs> but did you know he only got one leg? He got one leg, that guy. He's hiding it under the table, the fact he hasn't got another leg. And they gave him a wooden leg. And uh, he lost it in a farming accident when he was 19. But when he, when he was 19, lying in bed, he wasn't interested in God. But when he was lying in bed as a 19-year-old, God met him. And he, he came to Christ in his sickness. They got a wooden leg on him. He was hobbling around. And he felt God telling him to go to China as a missionary. 
So he applied to various uh, organizations. He said, I want to go to China. The only problem is I've got a wooden leg. But God, you know, he's, he's with me. <laughs> like the I am. And all the missionary agencies said, you're off your trolley. Or words to that effect. They said, why do you want to go to China when you've only got one leg? And he said, well, all my friends with two legs aren't going. So I think I should go. And then one man believed in him, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor said, you know, I think God is with you in this. I know it looks silly and ridiculous, especially where you want to go. He wanted to go to a place called Huenzao. Huenzao was totally anti-English anti people, anti-foreigners. They called them the white devils. He said, but although it seems totally crazy, I think God's with you. So Hudson Taylor put him on a ship in 1865, and he turned up in Huenzao City, or the town as it was then. And he planted a little church. But do you know the key person in his church? It was a handicapped boy who was paralysed down his left side. So basically you've got, as the main church planting team, a guy with a wooden leg and a cripple. And they planted the church. Now I want to tell you this, and this is where the goosebumps go up me. That church is still there today. And if you go to Huenzao today, it's got a nickname. Huenzao, which was really anti the gospel, anti uh, foreigners, is called the Jerusalem of China because there are 2,000 registered churches, there are 2,000 plus um, meeting places, and there are a whole uncounted number of unregistered churches. And the whole thing can be traced back. To a guy with a wooden leg and a cripple. <laughs> All I'm trying to make out to you is God can use people. You might think, oh, I can't do it. If God's with you, you can. And that's all I wanted to share. <laughs> remember Moses, remember the Exodus, remember how God outwitted Satan, how he, he, he stayed with Moses in his mistakes. He can transform anyone with the fire of God if they just humble themselves and how he can use you, no matter what, if he's called you. And the final point, uh, preachers keep saying they're going to finish, don't they? This is my final point, I should put that away. When you burn for God, it attracts people. You know, Moses said, I turn aside to see this great sight. And I believe that God has been moving here more lately. I don't want to say it too loudly in case he stops, but... <laughs> You know, when there's the fire in the meeting, the people are attracted. And I believe that's one reason why people turn up sometimes. Because there's just something there in the meeting. God's there. A lot of people, they, churches is like, church is like a fridge. It's cold, I don't go there. You know. Uh, but God, God, when God is in a meeting, when God is in River Church, and I think you keep praying for the Lord to be here and keep being here in his presence, people will come because they turn aside to look at the fire. And when God moved in the days of revival, back in the Hebrides, for instance, the church, people would turn up at church in the middle of the night. Because God, there was a meeting, God was there. People just turn up. They didn't even know, they just turn up. Weird, even at four o'clock in the morning. So let's just close with prayer.